This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners this week we're going to talk about the plasticity of primary care and how it can be activated in advance to meet the community health needs and the new value era primary care in this context of value-based care it embodies remarkable adaptability innovation and responsiveness to evolving community health needs and as our understanding of health and well-being expands primary care stands as the first line of defense ready to transform and customize services to address the unique challenges that are being faced by diverse populations and primary care providers are in this unique moment in time where in value-based care they can pivot swiftly you know whether it's responding to public health crises or addressing disparities in healthcare access or in integrating innovative technologies in the daily practice. And primary care not only becomes the cornerstone of patient-centered community health, but also a powerful catalyst for positive change that's driving us closer to the goal of a healthy, more equitable society. And I am so excited to tell you that this week we're joined by Sean Martin, the Executive Vice President and Chief Executive Officer for the American Academy of Family Physicians. The Academy is the medical specialty organization that represents 129,600 family physicians and medical students nationwide. Sean works with the AAFP Board of Directors on the mission, strategy, and vision for the Academy and provides representation to other organizations that include medical, public, and private sectors. He's someone with a storied background in uh, senior leadership and in healthcare, quality improvement, advocacy. He's received the Ryland Medal for Health Policy from the New York Institute of Technology. He's received several accolades along his career, but most importantly, he's leaving a legacy of trust with uh, his primary care constituents and uh, leading the way for them to exhibit their full expression of passion and creating a more holistic, longitudinal, relationship-based, tech and 
enabled way of delivering primary care. And, and, you know, in this conversation with Sean, we talk a lot about the value movement, uh, payment models, primary care consolidation, artificial intelligence, uh, the performance of physician-led ACOs. We talk about the making care primary new payment model and health equity. So this is a great episode if you want to know more about what's going on with the work of the Academy and, and the opportunity for transformative advanced primary care in our country. So now let's hear from Sean Martin as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Sean, welcome to the Race to Value. It is incredible to have you on the show this week. Well, Eric, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation and happy to share some thoughts and perspectives uh, with you and uh, your viewers. Well, Sean, as we begin our conversation today, I wanted to engage you on this fundamental premise that we need to strengthen primary care as a key to overall U.S. healthcare transformation. I mean, the research is irrefutable that people who have access to advanced primary care tend to have better health receive timelier diagnosis, and they get more prompt treatment when it's needed. Patients who have a long-term relationship with their PCPs are also less likely to go to the emergency room. Primary care continuity is also associated with improved care coordination and increased patient satisfaction. But unfortunately, we're unable to activate the full potential of transformative primary care because of the economics of our healthcare model. I mean, it just focuses too much on sick care rather than preventative health maintenance or upstream care models that more effectively manage chronic disease. And we've placed this increasingly greater value on specialty care over primary care. I mean, the numbers bear this out. I mean, the U.S. spends only 5 to 7% of its healthcare dollars on primary care. It's less than half of the 14% average in Western European countries. And this underinvestment in primary care is, prim is primarily concerning because accessible quality primary care is the cornerstone of a well-functioning healthcare system. And I know the AAFP is actively working with the nation's healthcare leaders to transform our system by investing in a strong foundation for primary care. And, you know, this transformation that needs to take place, I mean, it's also going to require substantive Medicare physician payment reform and primary care. And I know that's been a cornerstone of the Academy's efforts in 2023. And you've been calling for uh, an inflationary update and eliminating the annual threat of Medicare cuts. And these reforms are really needed to support family physicians, their patients, communities, and facilitate a large-scale transition to value-based care. So, Sean, can you update our listeners on the work that's being done by the AAFP and advocating for family physicians by urging Congress to enact comprehensive payment reforms? And how will reforming the inadequate physician payment system support the broader movement to value-based care? Yeah, Eric, thank you for that question. And I, I just, first of all, I, I agree completely with that excellent foundation you just laid on the value of, of primary care to both individuals, but also, you know, to the healthcare system writ large. So the Academy right now, I think we, we are working uh, in the policy space and regulatory space around kind of two competing uh, priorities. Uh, one um, is just the overall investment in primary care. Like the country as a whole, um, when compared to other thriving high quality healthcare systems, really underinvest in the concept or function, if you will, of primary care. So our Western European, Asian, uh, comparable countries, you know, are investing somewhere between 12 and 15% in primary health care. And as you said, the United States on, on the best of days is, is investing about 5%. So part of our objective is simply to 
uh, infuse you know more financial resources uh, into the function of primary care, and that often gets confused with salary and and you know increasing the uh, compensation models for uh, physicians and other clinicians in the primary care space is really important from a, a workforce and, and longitudinal strategy, uh, but investing in the primary care function. So making sure that uh, there are adequate teams, there's the technology support um, available to primary care is really an important priority for the academy. Um, the second thing is really a, a realization that, you know, I came to well over a decade ago, I think about the same time that probably you and lots of other people did as well, is just really you know, the misalignment of fee-for-service with what, you know, we all picture as value-based care in, in a primary care setting. And, you know, primary care at its best is, you know, is based on relationships. It's it's longitudinal. It's agnostic to modality, meaning that sometimes, you know, an in-person visit is, is really important. Sometimes a phone call is all you need. And sometimes a text message is best. And I think, what COVID showed me and, and others that share this philosophy is that uh, when you create an appropriately invested in primary care system and you create a payment model that is not beholden to an episode and it becomes more agnostic to modality, you start to get a really different experience on the patient side and you start to get a different output on, on the physician and care team side. So I, I talk a lot about the fact that fee for service is is you know misaligned um, with how we think about primary care and the opportunities of primary care in the future. So the two things we focus on uh, to summarize are you know one just increasing the financial investment in primary care in all programs, not just in the public programs, but also in the commercial uh, markets. Um, and the second thing is is rapid transition away from fee-for-service as a foundation uh, for supporting that primary care model and moving towards more advanced, prospective, global, or capitated uh, financing models. Well, Sean, as you describe, I mean, this grossly inadequate level of physician payment in primary care that's coupled with costly administrative complexity and the enrollment growth that we're seeing in public programs, I mean, it's created this misalignment that rewards poor population health. I mean, we see that in the outcomes, but it also favors consolidation. And while it's true that not all consolidation is bad, since we do have companies employing primary care physicians that are focused on bolstering the, the primary care capacity and, and access and investment in order to improve health outcomes for all populations and also address equity in underserved communities, and the overall trend is still very concerning. I mean, there's mounting evidence now that links vertical integration to higher prices and costs including insurance premiums without improving care quality or patient outcomes. And for many hospitals and payers, the motivation behind integrating primary care practices into larger consolidated models is control of cash flow because primary care as the front door of the healthcare system can significantly influence utilization, referrals, chronic illness management, non-independent primary care practices are basically being leveraged by their owners to maximize revenue in other business areas. And additionally, you see these site-of-service payment differentials that play a significant role in these inflated costs. I mean, the 
you know, current, you know, payment policies allow hospitals to charge facility fees for outpatient services. And this results in a extremely unlevel playing field where one might fail to put the patient first and potentially compromise clinical autonomy for family physicians. And this excess corporate primary care model also can siphon away revenue from primary care itself and contribute to a depletion of independent practices that are that are able to make those autonomous patient-centered clinical decisions. And, you know, I, I read earlier this summer, you testified before the Senate Finance Committee at a hearing, and it was called the Consolidation in Corporate Ownership and Healthcare. And I'd love to learn more about your thoughts on this important issue. Can you share with our listeners how the academy is approaching the challenges of consolidation and corporatization of primary care, and how do well-designed, sustainable, value-based payment models ultimately support primary care independence in the long term? Yeah, what a great question, and we can talk about this one forever. So I'll try to uh, narrow it down to a couple of key key points. So I think, you know, first of all, I, I think it's always important when we think about the outputs of of any methodology or any system that we just kind of reflect upon how we got here. And I, I think, you know, our healthcare system um, by design in the 1960s, the, the Medicare program, you know, created these siloed benefits and, you know, hospitals were considered independent of physicians. And, you know, ultimately we created, you know, a prescription drug benefit, but, there's not congruency across these programs by design. And, and in many respects, the commercial market and Medicaid uh, followed, you know, that initial design and, and those design flaws were, you know, carried forward um, for decades. And, you know, along the way, because there were design flaws, um, there were patches and, and, you know, quick fixes and workarounds and things that were really put into place to try to make uh, the system more operational, um, and ultimately they tried to make the system more efficient because the, you know, growth and and uh, spending on healthcare increased, and and you know really value based care in many respects was was a kind of the ultimate fix, if you will, to some of those structural flaws that have kind of been carried forward through our healthcare system for for many decades. So when I think about consolidation, um, in, in many respects, that's one of those fixes, both uh, small and large. And people began to uh, seek, you know, economic shelter in many respects because of changes in regulation and the design of the healthcare system. And, you know, in my testimony to the finance committee, I, I really stress that, that, that I think, you know, economic shelter. So the inability of independent physician practices or, or small group practices to survive under the regulatory framework of the modern day healthcare system became a major driver. And, and then you had kind of back-to-back -back, uh, big, you know, changes in the regulatory structure with the High Tech Act and MACRA. Um, and, and I think that was just more, that was more downward pressure on the community-based practice network, uh, then then those practices could really take in in many respects. So you you saw kind of this movement. Um, hospitals and health systems, in many respects, were very opportunistic during that time frame because they felt this downward economic pressure, and they had the ability to absorb, um, you know, those additional costs at at a in a manner that the individual physician practices. 
couldn't. But simultaneously, you really had a lot of innovation taking place, particularly inside primary care and community-based practice of medicine. So you, you know, you saw physicians seeking collaboration with other physicians, even though they they might have stopped short of consolidation. This concept of you know, independence was moving away from isolation. And, you know, for so long, each, you know, each town, each block, each community, you know, had a physician and they were largely isolated, you know, from each other and from other support mechanisms of the healthcare system. And and kind of in the, in and around 2010 and the time we were passing the Affordable Care Act, you really started to see this movement of physicians wanting to get closer to each other. And, and, you know, in many respects, you saw kind of an explosion of IPAs and integrated clinical networks and um, those kind of early concepts that, you know, supported the patient-centered medical homework, but also started to create the ability of physicians to lean upon each other and centralize resources around, you know, care management, disease management, other types of, of concepts. As we move forward with the policy apparatus, you know, those those ideas of connectivity grew because you had, you know, the, the chronic care management program came in to be the transitions of care management. So physicians really begin to see the value, if you will, of not being isolated from each other. And, and maybe they wanted to stop short of being fully integrated or consolidated or aggregated into a larger group, but they begin to really think about being closer to each other and supporting each other, like-minded practices supporting each other. And I and I think, you know, what happened in some respects in the consolidation space is you saw some health systems lean in here. You saw a lot of payers uh, identify this and and move into this space, the Optum, Centerwells, there's, there's others. But you also saw, you know, Wall Street and, and other uh, capital markets begin to see the opportunity of aligning primary care. And what they all saw was that primary care needed an infusion of cash and a motivation to really move in a different direction. So, you know, my my take on, on consolidation is um, equal parts, all consolidation is bad and all consolidation is good in some respects for primary care. I think the you know, the infusion of capital in the absence of, of that financial support from, you know, the big public payers was probably necessary to move primary care in a different direction and help them survive the the kind of on-ramp, um, if you will, to move towards towards value. They needed they needed capital to be able to make those transitions. And that capital was provided by a variety of parties um, in the marketplace. Uh, I think the other thing that it did is is it created a little bit of an external motivation uh, for change, and we all we all experience this in our own way. And yet, I think you know, and I I was a part of this. We, you know, we all wanted physicians to just change that there was a better way, and they knew that there was a better way. And and why? How do we just get them to buy in to a better way? But the the problem is, it's really difficult to do transformation when you're seeing 30, 35 patients a day, six days a week, you know, 48, 49 weeks out of the year, the, the the mental space that you need to think about transforming your practice inside that construct uh, was, was um, unfair 
in many respects. We were asking too much. So I, I think some of these different models and the investments and the consolidation, you know, started to create some opportunities for physicians uh, to move in different directions. And, you know, Eric, I'm always careful to point out, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of consolidation is physician to physician consolidation, um, physicians creating, you know, practice opportunities and alignments and aggregations and networks that are, you know, really very physician controlled and, um, you know, they're performing very well. And and I know we're probably going to get to this, but when you, when you look at the performance of physician integration and consolidation in the value space as compared to those that were motivated, if you will, by other parties, you start to see some some pretty interesting data. Well, Sean, I'd love to explore that more with you. I mean, we've seen primary care physicians playing an important part in accountable care organizations over the last decade. I mean, and they've orchestrated this crucial role of prevention and early intervention, care coordination, ultimately driving improved patient outcomes and cost savings. And there's no better ev evidence of this than the shared savings success of these physician-led ACOs over their hospital-led counterparts. And, you know, research has shown that these low-revenue physician-led ACOs perform significantly better than the high-revenue hospital ones. On average, I mean, I think the physician-led ACOs are producing upwards of seven times the amount of Medicare shared savings per beneficiary than the hospital-led ACOs. And these physician-led ACOs perform better because they're agile, they're unconflicted. You know, if you're a hospital ACO, you have to uh, contend with demand destruction on your fee-for-service lines of business. You have to worry about reducing your admissions and ED visits and procedures. And a majority of the savings that are elicited in ACOs are keeping patients out of your doors and the hospital has to bear the loss. And these hospital ACOs focus on getting the revenue through seeing more patients and preventing leakage from the system. And these hospital leaders are in a very uniquely difficult position because they have to take the fee-for-service revenue hit today for doing the right thing instead of taking a much larger hit down the road by not preparing for this shift to value-based reimbursement. And physician-led ACOs uh, don't have this dichotomy. I mean, there's a, clearly a, a better pathway to financial benefits from reducing hospital costs outside of the physician practice. So, you know, Sean, given all this evidence for the superior performance of primary care physician-led ACOs compared to their hospital counterparts, you know, how can these learnings be applied to future health policy reforms and value-based care? And and also with the success of these physician-led ACOs, are, are more PCPs interested in taking prospective payment with increased exposure to downside risk in order to have access to more of the upside? Yeah, I, I think your observations are just fabulous. And, and when you think about, you know, why, why are physician-led kind of low volume, low revenue ACOs performing so much better than, you know, system-led or kind of high revenue ACOs? And, and you know, for me, it, it really boils down to a pretty simple concept that we, that I talked about in my, my response to your first question, which is really kind of autonomy. Um, you know, these physician-led ACOs have a lot more autonomy to focus on the patient. Um, they have the autonomy to make decisions in the moment. Um, they aren't, you know, necessarily beholden to service lines or referral networks or those types of things. And I think really empowering primary care at the point of care to um, be patient-centered, but also to be autonomous in their decision-making, meaning that they aren't, you know, beholden to a higher or third-party 
um, financial interest or corporate interest really has changed a lot of people's thinking around what is possible with value-based care. And, you know, if you think about uh, just kind of back to my comments about the, the fragmentation of uh, the healthcare system by design for, for many decades, but if you can start to think about those uh, fragmented systems becoming uh, supporters and collaborators with each other instead of being integrated together, I think you can really see a different type of output in the forms of quality and cost for uh, individuals and families and communities moving forward. And, you know, I, I sympathize with with hospitals. They, you know, the, the occupancy model that hospitals really rely upon is, is challenging. But I don't think that those challenges are insurmountable if you start to create a more collaborative community-based physician networks with their uh, hospital networks and really, you know, kind of working in harmony for the for the benefit of the community overall. I, I think that's really possible. So I, I think the other thing that's really unique for me, and I'll probably say this in many answers to many questions, Eric, but I really think the magic of value-based care for primary care, and one of the reasons that you see some of these physician-led ACOs doing well, besides autonomy, um, is just this concept of moving away from fee-for-service. I think fee-for-service is just really toxic to primary care. It incentivizes all the wrong things. It incentivizes episodes of care and time-limited episodes and you know lots of them. And I, I think when you think about just care, primary care especially, is longitudinal. Um, it's really built upon the the foundation of a trusting longitudinal relationship between a patient and their caregivers and the physicians and a primary care team, uh, creating payment models that allow that trusting longitudinal relationship uh, to take place and then to be exercised in, in the most appropriate way. And this is, I go back to that kind of agnostic approach to modality of care. You don't always need an in-person visit. Um, it allows you to incorporate, you know, telemedicine and the telephone and texting and other digital apps and things that allow patients and their care team and physicians to be connected without the the stress of always having to rely upon an in-person visit. And, and I think these payment models, particularly assuming some risk and, and total cost of care responsibility are really starting to allow practices to see what's possible in that space. So you know, just quickly, the, you know, autonomy at the practice level and just moving away from the toxic fee-for-service system, I think are just, you know, two magical policies that, you know, will will continue to produce very positive outcomes. Well, Sean, while we're on the topic of payment models, I wanted to get your take on the new primary care payment model from CMMI, Making Care Primary. It's a state-based multi-payer model, which uh, supports primary care practices in the transition to prospective value-based payment. And it's a promising model to support sustainability of these independent practices, you know, given, you know, what we talked about, which is this unprecedented consolidation that we've seen in the landscape. And, you know, there was a recent press release by the Academy, which commended CMMI for recognizing the importance of significant upfront investment by multiple payers uh, by making this new model a 10-year a transformation project in the eight states that were selected for, for uh, participation. 
So, Sean, can you share with our listeners maybe an update on this new MCP model and how it builds on the key learnings derived from other transformation models like comprehensive primary care and CPC plus? And how can a model like this better align with the goals to eventually bring Medicaid more into the realm of value based payment? Yeah, what a what a great question. I I think you know I'm really I'm really pleased with the MCP in in many respects, and I think you know a lot of our members and me included, you know, would love to see it in more places and kind of be a more robust you know available model for for more physician practices. But the construct of it is is right. Um, you know, one it creates an on ramp opportunity, and I I speak a lot about this Eric because I think you know we we want everybody to kind of be a high performer from day one. And earlier I talked about, you know, just the mind space and the effort that it takes to move towards a value-based model and, and how we, you know, we as a policy community need to be supportive of creating opportunities for physicians and practices to be successful. I, I think when you just throw them into a highly functioning model, like maybe MSSP, they just don't, they're not ready for that and they're not successful and the frustration sets in. But I think NCP is, is the right approach. I think it's a it's an on-ramp with the two major payers um, in any primary care practices, which is Medicare and Medicaid. And our data has suggested for a long time that one payer is not enough. Um, and if you look at the practice mix of most family physicians, uh, their two top payers you know, typically will be Medicare and Medicaid, especially in the Medicare space if you include MA. So taking those kind of two foundational payers, especially when you think about rural practices, those two payers are more prominent in, you know, rural exurban type practices. You create a different opportunity for those practices to participate. Um, there's the prospective payment model. Um, there's lots of technical support to help them move forward. Um, I think the other thing, which is, you know, CMMI, I will defend them on this. I think the 10-year approach is right. Um, I think three or four-year evaluations are are really difficult for practices, particularly small practices, because our, our data would suggest that it takes 12 to 18 months just to kind of hit your stride. Um, and if you're inside a four-year model and it takes you, you know, one third of that time just to kind of get going, your evaluation period is really narrow. And I think this more longitudinal approach is really the, the right way to think about it. I, I think the opportunity for CMMI moving forward is how do you start to transition people on a consistent movement into more uh, sophisticated models over time so that maybe they come in on an on-ramp and they continue to move up uh, into other models that have been demonstrated per our previous conversation to, to you know really benefit individuals in the program. But I am a firm believer that there is no single right way to accomplish the goals that we're after. And we have to have opportunities for family physicians and primary care teams to engage in models that benefit their practices and their communities. And I think this is a really good one. And um, it's not going to be right for everybody. Um, but I think it's a really good model for a lot of practices. Well, Sean, in the last year, we've adjusted to this post-pandemic norm, and there's been a series of studies that have showed the declining health of Americans, the exorbitant costs that the U.S. pays for health care, and how these factors are leading to a dramatic decrease in life expectancy and 
These studies are alarming due to the confusion associated with how people in the wealthiest nation find themselves in such a position and more concerning why we aren't more aggressive in reversing these trends. And earlier this summer, you wrote a medical economics article called How Moneyball Can Teach Us How to Invest in Primary Care. And you discussed how the ongoing continuous relationship with primary care increases life expectancy, reduces costs, while also reducing health disparities, you know, to create a more equitable healthcare system. And in applying this moneyball concept to healthcare transformation, you noted how analyzing data and coming to radically different conclusions about healthcare should be provided and financed. And, you know, there's these differing views on healthcare reform, but it does seem that health equity has become a, a a starting point for transformation. And CMS has been very clear at this point that advancing equity is now their primary concern. And, and it's such a daunting challenge to advance equity uh, in a primary care practice. You know, there was a recent Academy member survey that indicated while 85% of surveyed physicians believe social needs are directly related to poor health, 80% are not confident in their ability to address their patient's social needs. So, Sean, can you provide your thoughts on improving health equity in underserved populations and the role that primary care should play in that? And also, is there a money ball investment scenario we can consider to provide uh, PCPs with this infrastructure that's needed to deploy these important SDOH related interventions in underserved communities? Yeah, I think, you know, the Moneyball piece was really fun to to write. And I, I, you know, I listened to that interview with Michael Lewis and it just kind of, you know, it hit me at a time that I was really just thinking about underperformance of healthcare in general and, and some of these concepts we've, we've talked about today and just being an enormous, you know, baseball fan of my own and that, you know, that I, I love that book and the way he, framed kind of the battle, if you will, of traditional or legacy views versus the outputs that were in front of them and, and how they justified that and how that really is so applicable to healthcare. We just continue to, you know, think in the forms of heroic measures. And and while those things are important, they're they're not helping people be healthier and live longer. Um, they really are, you know, late stage interventions and they're not moving our healthcare system or the population in, in, a, in a position towards health. So with respect to your question about health equity, I, I, I feel really passionately that, you know, the single best investment to improve equity in our healthcare system is primary care. You know, one, um, I've used this phrase a lot, you know, it just sums it up for me is, 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 you know, primary care is not, you know, they don't really exist in, you know, glass buildings. Primary care is really a main street discipline of medicine. I mean, they, they are in the neighborhood, they are in the community, they are responsive to the community. Primary care and family medicine has a plasticity to respond to community need that is unmatched, unparalleled by any other discipline of medicine. And if you think about how to improve opportunities for health for more people and reduce inequities and disparities, that has to start with primary care. It can't start anywhere else. It can't start with a web page. It can't start with an app. Um, it has to start with somebody in that community that is being informed and empowered with data and resources. 
And the Academy has invested a lot in a program called the Everyone Project, which is a, you know, web-based application that's on our website that really helps connect our members in their practice with community-based resources that are available to them and their patients. And, and I think this is the start, and it's not a solution. I mean, it's not a solution to health uh, disparities or, or creating greater equity, but it's a start. It's empowering community-based physicians to engage with their patients in community-based solutions. Um, and, and I just, I uh, again, I just feel very passionately that you just cannot begin to change the trajectory of inequities in the healthcare system without primary care. I, I just, I don't think it will will work. And, and um, I applaud the innovation. I love all the digital apps. I think there are a lot of really cool things that can be incorporated or brought to bear um, in these efforts, but I still think it's a one v one type of relationship, you know, in the community that really puts us in a position to uh, change the trajectory of, of the health and well being of of all populations um, in the United States. And and I understand there's a workforce challenge to that not every community has primary care, but you know our goal should not our goal should be to put a family physician or primary care physician in, in every community, not create workarounds because we don't think we can accomplish that workforce goal. Well, Sean, let's talk about the challenges of these communities that don't have adequate access to primary care. I mean, we have to change the trajectory of primary care. We need to create an ecosystem that pro provides enablement and community health. And it's no secret that some of the greatest disparities in healthcare today exist uh, for those that live in rural America, where you know geography, lack of infrastructure, and other social factors all contribute to this drastically, you know, poor state of health outcomes. And it's an iniquitous reality that's underscored by a mortality rate that's 23% higher for people living in rural communities than those that live in urban communities. And individuals in rural communities deserve so much more. And of the primary care members that you serve in the academy, about 17% of them live and work every day in rural America. And they deeply understand the realities that rural communities face in order to remain prosperous and vibrant. And the AAFP is made a commitment to improve rural healthcare across the country. I, I know in 2019, you launched a rural health initiative. So Sean, what are some of the particular challenges that are facing your members that are practicing in rural communities? And how should value-based care reforms ensure that we do not exclude patients living in these underserved areas? Yeah, I think I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here, but I think, you know, when you think about the promise of moving away from fee-for-service to prospective or capitated type models, I mean, nowhere is that more important than a, a rural community where you have more pressure to be more comprehensive for every patient because you're, you know, distance, both in terms of miles, but also you know, distance to larger tertiary care centers is is greater. And what value-based care allows practices to do is to create greater levels of continuity, but it also allows them to uh, respond to their community need in, in ways that are really accepted by the by the community. And that could be home visits or or again, you know, just a simple telephone call and some in-person visits. And you know, I think um, I've shared this several times. I, you know, my father was a rural family physician and, you know, rural family medicine is is not just practiced in 
um, the office space setting or the emergency room or the hospital. It's it's you know it's practiced in uh, the grocery store parking lot. It's it's practiced at the high school extracurricular activities. Um, it's practiced in fields and. You know, value-based care lets those practices actually do that. And it sounds a little hokey, but it's actually true. Um, they're not reliant upon a fee-for-service or episodic-based model, and they are free uh, to kind of meet the community need um, and, and serve patients in a, in a, in a unique way, uh, but in a comprehensive way. I think the other thing, rural economic systems are, are complicated right now, and the and you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking around the relationship. It's, it's almost a chicken and egg uh, conversation in my head of, you know, does the physician keep the hospital open or does the hospital keep the physician in the rural community? And I think really thinking about, you know, some of the relationships between the physician workforce and particularly these critical access hospitals becomes uh, interesting to me because there needs to be a support system. And I think the support system doesn't look like we think about it in the suburban or urban areas. It's a little bit different, but that that support system still needs to, to be there. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think, you know, redefining what a rural hospital is, does it look more like a community health center with some observation beds or more like maybe a you know, an urgent care with some observation beds. I I, th I think there's just a lot of opportunity to think about what the rural healthcare ecosystem looks like and and how we engage them. But um, if we continue to rely upon fee for service and episodes of care, physicians are going to have a really hard time uh, having prosperous practices in in rural America. And you know, I I you know we talked earlier about the you know investment and and kind of innovation in primary care, but there's a lot of you know, really creative innovation taking place in supporting rural practices. And I, I'm thrilled to see it. I'm a strong supporter of them. I, I want them to be successful because I think they're creating uh, opportunities for, for these rural practices to move to more, you know, value-based uh, care designs that, that will help them actually provide better care to their communities. But, you know, the the thing I haven't mentioned in our conversation today is, is you know, physicians tend to enjoy their 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 practice. They tend to be happier, have more higher professional satisfaction in these value based models than they do in a fee for service model. Well, Sean, you mentioned uh, the challenges of the workforce right now in primary care, and it's such an immense challenge, you know, to have an adequate supply of primary care physicians. I mean, many go to medical school intending to be a primary care physician, and, you know, they, they take out substantial student loans, and, you know, and then decisions are made when it comes down to matching for a residency where, you know, in a fee-for-service environment, you know, invariably you have to become a specialist in order to, to create, the, to generate the level of income that, that one would need to pay off student debt and, and really start your life uh, professionally. And, you know, primary care physicians are so critical to U.S. health, as we talked about, and the, the family medicine workforce pipeline's never been more challenged. And, you know, I know the Academy is working to restore growth to the specialty by ensuring effective and accessible care for generations to come. And to accomplish that, I know you're advocating for clear regulatory and legislative pathways to expand the physician workforce. And it's such a big issue. I mean, the U.S. healthcare system right now is threatened by this primary care workforce shortage. I mean, the country needs up to 48,000 more primary care physicians by 2034. And Meeting that imperative means clearing major roadblocks, and that's a mission that I know that the Academy is intently focused on. So, you know, Sean, what are what's some of the work being done 
by the AAFP to ensure that we have an adequate physician workforce in the decades to come? Yeah, I, I think you touched on a, on many of them, Eric. I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about improving the practice environment, you know, creating a practice environment that's uh, supportive of and aligned with kind of the philosophical approach uh, to caring for individuals and, and communities. I think that objective was lost for a couple of decades. And I think really getting back to thinking, putting physicians in a position to be successful in caring for individual patients, but also communities, I think is really important. Uh, because I agree with you, I think a lot of students go to medical school and they are very community focused. They want to provide care to a community. And I think primary care is the best opportunity for them to realize those professional goals. And over time, the the practice environment has become uh, less favorable and frustrating in many respects and unfulfilling. And, and um, we've got to restore that. You know, nobody wants to work uh, in an environment or, or, you know, in support of an effort that is really unfulfilling to both uh, the professional, but also to the patient or the community. So that, that has to be objective one. We have to make primary care better financed, better supported, better designed to help uh, people and, and empower and position them to provide care to individuals and communities. You know, moving beyond that, there's a lot of, I'm going to resist the urge to pile on medical schools and medical school deans, but you know, there's a lot that needs to happen on medical school campuses. And, you know, medical school campuses, first and foremost, are, are a, you know, a time where high volume of uh, information is uh, presented and absorbed in a very rapid manner. And, and the, you know, the goal is to teach them as much as humanly possible in a very limited and defined period of time and uh, teach them how to think and incorporate information and data into uh, thought processes and application to, to patient care. But it's also a time where you begin to shape the aspirations of the students that you have on campus. And I, I think, as I said in the Moneyball piece, we have become uh, infatuated um, as a country, but certainly as a healthcare system, you know, really from the 1990s forward with this concept of over you know of specialization and a really specific specialization and the concept if you will of generalist whether that be general surgery or primary care or other things has really been lost in favor of intense specialization in, in the healthcare system and and I think a lot of that you know begins on medical school campuses and I, I think it is perpetuated through the clinical rotations and influences that uh, medical students experience. And, and, you know, there are an unacceptable number of, of medical schools that, you know, don't really have um, strong primary care presences on their campuses. So students never, medical students never even see primary care. It's not something they're exposed to. And I, I think the other thing, which is, you know, of great importance to me as kind of somebody that is you know, in a position to talk about family medicine um, on a national stage is, you know, really defining what family medicine, what family medicine is. And I spoke earlier about the ability of family physicians to respond to their communities, but um, family physicians can do a lot of things. And um, there's the ability to be responsive and community focused in a variety of ways. So, you know, if you want to focus on you know, children or women's health or rural health or 
uh, adult medicine or sports medicine, you know, all of those things are possible uh, in a career in family medicine, and they are possible in other specialties. I mean, if you you choose some specialties, you're going to do that one thing um, for the next 30 years, but family medicine is going to provide you that opportunity to really do something that's responsive to individuals and communities that is that is unique uh, in the practice of medicine. You know, the other thing, the the final thing is there's, you mentioned the student debt. Um, you can never overlook the economic uh, realities of the kind of education to job pipeline. And, you know, even though median income for family physicians continues to increase, um, it's, you know, barely keeping pace with the inflationary costs of loans and other um, you know financing mechanisms that students face and that's that's just a, a, a reality so I I always take you know both sides of that equation I mean one medical schools and others need to do a better job of keeping costs lower so that students don't have to take out um, as much debt to pursue their professional uh, journey and kind of be unencumbered by the financial constraints of being educated to be a physician and the second thing is we need to improve the investment in primary care, which ultimately will lead to, you know, higher or more sustainable uh, compensation for those that enter family medicine. Well, Sean, if we're going to increase the investment in primary care, I, I, you know, we also need to think about the technology enablement. I mean, in population health, you know, we have to have interdisciplinary, uh, team-based, relationship-driven care, but you also have to have a, a, a foundation for uh, technology enablement that's really going to allow you to uh, understand data and create a, a framework of interoperability, uh, deploy interventions that are going to be predictive and go upstream to address some of the more systemic challenges and creating health inequities and contributing to chronic disease. And, you know, right now we're at this point where, you know, many are, are saying that AI is going to drive the future of healthcare, and it's a it's a key to reclaiming relationships in primary care. And you know, AI has the potential to support family medicine by enhancing capacity and extending extending capabilities. And you know, AI tools can effectively identify patients at high risk for poor outcomes and uh, perform triage and provide clinical decision support and assist with visit documentation. And it can also be leveraged to help achieve that quintuple aim of applied appropriately in, in family medicine. And I know there's a lot of fear right now and with physicians about AI, but really these solutions, if appropriately um, implemented, they could really create the level of automation and surface data and insights to really improve population health. And I, I saw recently the, the Academy uh, adopted a policy on the ethical application of artificial intelligence and in family medicine. And I'd love to get your thoughts on how we should implement AI pragmatically and ethically to ensure it serves the greatest good for all involved. I mean, could you share with our listeners the work that the AAFP is doing to support AI and machine learning in primary care? Yeah, I, I think our principals, I'm really proud of the work that our, our you know, team and, and board and members did on that. I, I think, you know, some of the kind of broad stroke summary of, the, of that effort is, is, you know, really transparency around AI and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're being honest with each other and being honest with patients about how AI is being used, um, you know, were decisions informed by AI, were they made by AI, um, you know, is there a human element to making sure that the application of that uh, information was appropriate? Um, so I, I think some of it, you know, I would characterize as just really common sense guardrails around 
uh, how we're going to use AI. And, and, you know, look, there are innovators and disruptors that uh, believe, you know, AI is just, you know, a standalone entity that can start to really, you know, drive better healthcare outcomes. I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I think AI is, is an enablement or empowerment, you know, tool for, for care teams and physicians to use. And I, I think that's the approach we're taking. So I see AI in three ways, uh, Eric. I, th- I think first and foremost, where I see the greatest promise immediately um, is to take away administrative tasks at the at the practice level. I think you can start to uh, use AI in ways to uh, reduce the burden of documentation, prior authorization, utilization management, chart review. Um, those types of things, which I think, you know, start to free up time and and kind of mind space for uh, physicians to spend more time uh, with, with patients. Um, I think the second place is that uh, for years, I spoke earlier about the specialization of medicine, but, you know, for years, the specialization of medicine was kind of driven because the, you know, the volume of information that had to be understood and comprehended and and mastered, if you will, you know, led to the physician workforce being specialized. I mean, now um, information is readily available. And and I view that as just a tremendous opportunity for comprehensive primary care. You can have unlimited access to data and applicable data um, at the point of care in a matter of seconds. Um, so I, I think when you think about comprehensive primary care in the future, particularly comprehensive primary care that is AI enabled um, or AI empowered, I mean, it is it is uh, really exciting to me about the realization of a new era of comprehensive primary care and what that means. Um, of course, you're going to need specialists and of course, you're going to need specialty consults, but so much more care because of the democratization and availability of data in real time at the point of care is just going to enable primary care to do manage more for their patients and for the communities. Um, and then the third thing, which is, you know, I, I think still a little controversial is just the concept of how AI can empower people, um, you know, how it can inform us around what we're eating, how we're exercising. Um, I don't know about you, Eric, but every day my phone tells me that I'm not exercising enough in that particular day and I better, you know, get after it. But it's very motivating, right? It says you still have time today to achieve these goals that you've established for yourself. And I, I think, you know, helping us be smarter about what we do and how we engage with with food and uh, you know, exercise and stress and, and mental and behavioral health. I, I just, uh, you know, it's exciting to me about how we can become, you know, smarter individuals as far as engaging with health and well-being and then what that means for our relationship with, with our primary care uh, physician. I, I think we're just on the, the cusp of a kind of new opportunity for health. And you said it at the top, you know, like we have a healthcare system is really focused on sick care. And I think we have an opportunity to really be transformational in thinking about health. 
Well, Sean, I, I share in your optimism. I mean, now is the time. We have this tremendous opportunity to transform health in our communities, address inequities, resolve this healthcare cost crisis, and you know, uh, prevent this looming insolvency of the Medicare Trust Fund. And you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, I really wanted to get your parting thoughts uh, for of inspiration for the future of primary care. You know, in this race to value the future of primary care really shines as a beacon of hope where compassion and innovation and patient-centeredness can lead the way to a healthier tomorrow. And it's driven not by volume, but by the true value of healing and well-being. So, you know, Sean, what would you say to a primary care physician that's listening to this interview that feels defeated and marginalized and burned out? I mean, what what hope can they have, especially if they have another you know, 20 or 30 years in practice, I mean, to, to really tap into that, that reservoir of healing and altruism and, and really create a union with the, the, the sole reason why they went into medicine, you know, to, to improve health and, and, and really be altruistic. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say to them is thank you. Thank you for choosing primary care. Thank you for being in service to individuals and communities. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of people, myself included and others that, you know, are, are working really hard every day to make that environment more supportive of, you know, that vision that they had for their uh, service to that community that they chose to practice in. I, I think the thing, it, you know, the the pendulum always swings. And, and I spend a lot talking about the kind of 20-year uh, swing that we had around kind of specialization of uh, healthcare, not just on the physician side, but just specialization of healthcare generally. And I think we have an opportunity uh, moving forward through value-based care and kind of transitions to different financing models uh, to really swing back towards towards health. And and the uh, the opportunity is somewhat driven by economic fear, right? Like our healthcare system has grown um, unsustainable from from a individual and and you know, larger population perspective, but, you know, what, what we're getting for the price we're spending um, is not sustainable for individuals, families, governments, employers, et cetera. And I, I think that economic reality is coming at a time where um, concepts such as continuity and longitudinal relationships and being on a healthcare journey um, and people, you know, in the post-COVID world really thinking about health as a lifetime endeavor and not just something you do after a bad diagnosis or the onset of a chronic disease creates a, a you know a unique moment in time uh, for us to really lean into to primary care as foundational to our to our healthcare system and um, I, I use those words carefully Eric because I think primary care is foundational to a healthcare system I, I don't think primary care is the healthcare system. Um, we need specialists, we need hospitals, we need therapy and long-term care. Those things are all really, really important to the well-being uh, of our communities. But good health care starts with a really robust foundation of primary care. And we see it all over the world. Um, we see it in communities here in the United States. The presence of primary care, this is a, a famous Dartmouth study, but just the presence of primary care increases life expectancies. You don't even have to see a primary care physician, but the presence of primary care in your community increases life expectancy by 51 days. Um, that is a really powerful 
uh, data point, when you think about the trajectory that we're on with respect to spending and life expectancy and health. So I, I think it's just a unique opportunity uh, in time to kind of marry a lot of different wants and desires um, under the kind of threat of, of a really bad economic situation. And the downward economic pressure is motivating us to hopefully take advantage of some opportunities. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the Race to Value podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, you know, how can our listeners find out more about uh, the work that's being done at the American Academy of Family Physicians and, and follow your thought leadership? Sure. Well, I, um, I'm available on all social media platforms at at R. Sean M., um, and the AFP, you, the best way to follow us is obviously on social media, but also at aafp.org. Um, we have a large amount of information available in front of our uh, firewall. Um, if you're looking for more patient-centered information, we have a wonderful patient-facing resource called familydoctor.org. Uh, we put a lot of our uh, content on health and well-being and uh, lifestyle medicine and those types of things on that particular website. And Eric, I um, I really appreciate you inviting me. I, I've enjoyed this very much, and I'm honored that you chose me to spend some time with you this week. Well, the honor is all here, my friend. Thank you for the work that you're, do you're doing in advancing primary care, and our country will be better for it in the long run. Thank you so much. 